Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So hopefully this article, this article will help readers understand some of the economic currents that under, underlie the war and the period immediately after the war. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Scott Smith discussing Captain Luke Day and his role in Shay's Rebellion. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Scott Smith, and he'll be discussing Luke Day and his role in the Rebellion in Massachusetts, after the American Revolution that played such a pivotal role in our early republic, Shays' Rebellion. One of Scott's primary arguments in this article is that Shays' Rebellion was actually much bigger than just Daniel Shays. It was highly complicated with many different structures of leadership, and some people, like our subject Luke Day, played enormously important roles in the struggle, even though historically they're paid very little mind for it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Scott Smith. Scott Smith, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be back, Brady. Tell us about your background. Sure. Well, I was in the investment business for almost 30 years, doing research and investing in the computer software industry. What I really found over the years was research and writing were my passion. And I was fortunate to do well enough on the investing side of it to be able to pursue my passion. So for the last decade, I've been researching, writing novels and nonfiction work. Um, That's something that I'd always wanted to do. So I wrote two cybersecurity novels in in 2015, 2017. And in 2017, 2018, I saw Hamilton on Broadway. And I just fell in love with the revolution. And given that I came from Brooklyn, was living in Connecticut, that was really the hotbed of revolutionary activities in 1775, 76, that I felt it was just such an exciting concept to be able to research and and do really firsthand research um, into the era. And Hamilton led me to Nathan Hale, who was the state hero of Connecticut, and just had so much in common with Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton. Up until this time, Nathan Hale, you know, volunteered to be a spy. You know, both Hamilton and Hale were college educated, Ivy League educated, really. They were good looking men. They were captains in the Continental Army. They were serving in, in New York City in the summer of 1776, the disastrous summer of 1776 with the Battle of Brooklyn. And when George Washington asked for a volunteer to be a spy to try to save the army and, and save his life, 
Nathan Hale raised his hand and Alexander Hamilton didn't. And the rest is history. I'd like to say Alexander Hamilton went on to a, a great career and a play on Broadway and Nathan Hale went to an ignominious grave and a novel by a first time a novelist, Nate. So it was a totally different, but the, the, you know, their similarities really attracted me. And accordingly, I've turned my research on Nathan Hale into an adventure, a historical novel, an adventure story that takes place in 1775, 1776, called The Spy and the Seamstress. And that's going to be available on Amazon effective this week. So that's my first cut, cut at, at historical fiction. Um, but it's full of historical details, historical characters. And I think it's overall a great story. So that's, that's my plug for the day, Brady. What first drew your interest into this topic? It was really this particular article on Luke Day is my second article for the Journal of the American Revolution on Shays' Rebellion. And what really prompted that was the January 6th insurrection, whatever you want to call it, in the United States. It really shocked me. It really saddened me. It really angered me. And I wanted to try to understand the, if there was historical context for it. And that led me to Shays' Rebellion. I wrote an article for JAR that was published last summer called Insurrection and Speculation, which taught, which discussed the speculators in the, bond, in the government bond market right after the revolution and how that put the, the farmers and the men and women who actually fought the revolution at such a financial disadvantage and how that led to Shays' Rebellion. And in researching Shays' Rebellion, I began to realize that Daniel Shays in some ways sort of got lucky that it was named after him. There were, there were a committee of 17 army captains that really led the rebellion. Luke Day was easily number two, if not number one, in, in, in that hierarchy over time. But it was, it was convenient for the government to, to scapegoat someone. And for reasons that I talk about in the Luke Day article, Daniel Shays was the man. And we can talk about those later in this podcast. Tell us about Luke Day's early life. You know, Luke, Luke Day had, had a good early life. He sort of came from what would be considered one of the first families of Springfield, Massachusetts. The Days, they were one of the early settlers. His family owned a large farm. He was in, in, good, in good stead in life. And, you know, he, I think he considered himself, you know, a, a farmer, a patriot, most of all. He jumped to, to volunteer to fight for his country. It was literally the day after the battles of Lexington and Concord, he was in the army. Um, he joined this society, the Cincinnati, right after the war, again, in, you know, demonstrating his patriotism and really his position in more of the aristocracy than the, the common farmer, the yeoman farmer. But so, again, he, he came from the good side of the tracks, if you will. Discuss Day's service in the American Revolution. So, he, again, he joined literally right after on Lexington and Concord. He was with Benedict Arnold in the march up to Quebec, which was really a death march. It was one of the toughest actions of the Revolutionary War. Um, he made it through the forest and through the bogs and the swamps and the frost and to the gates of Quebec where Benedict Arnold was defeated. He stayed, he served in that Northeast corridor, I guess, for the, rebel, for the duration of the war for the, almost the whole duration of the war. He was at Saratoga, um, the Battle of Saratoga. He, he has, 
through wounds and injuries, he was going back and forth to home a bit. Um, but he was still recruiting um, men for his troops in 1781. And then he marched with the Continental Army down to Yorktown um, for the final battle of the war before returning home in 1782. 1783, he was one of the earliest um, officers to join the Society of Cincinnati. So I think he was always, his wartime service was beyond reproach. He was considered a battle-hardened army captain, very well respected by his men, served for the duration of the war, and fought bravely in several of the key battles of the war. Why was Luke Day jailed initially? When Luke Day came home from the war, 1782, the 1782-1783, the economy was starting to really roll over. We had rampant inflation in the United States, which are now the United States, um, from the in Massachusetts, there was a lack of species, lack of gold and silver. Um, the economy was really grinding to a to a halt. I think the continental dollar was trading at less than two cents on the dollar um, overall, and there was a real divide between the haves and the have-nots. And unfortunately, the the have-nots were a large number of the people, the men who had fought in the war. They came home to their farms, it would say, you know, the, the classic Minutemen left the farms to fight in the battle. Those who had stayed and suffered through Quebec, suffered through Valley Forge, suffered through march, marches all over the state of New Jersey and New York, came home to find they couldn't support their families. At the same time, the, the people that hadn't fought and fought, physically fought in the war, the merchants um, on the coast, had done pretty well. And they were when they were one of the few handful of men, I think 20 or 30 men in Massachusetts controlled the vast majority of currency of of real cash, gold and silver. They were able to buy the war bonds um, that the states and that the states and the Continental Congress had issued to pay soldiers to pay for goods. They were buying them at 10 or 20 cents on the dollar and, you know, with the hope of making a big financial killing on it. That was you know, those are the equivalent of the hot stocks of the day. So you had the, the men like Luke Day, who had fought in the war, received at most paper, um, financial paper bonds as payment, were forced to sell those bonds for 10 to 20 cents on the dollar to speculators who then were able to profit when the government was going to come back and mandate that those bonds get paid in full. And in fact, the state of Massachusetts, when James Bowden became governor in 1785, raised taxes specifically to pay back the bondholders in full. So you had a situation where the, the common farmer who fought in the war, taxes were four acts after the war than before the war. So I'll repeat that. The, the, the common farmer in Massachusetts found he was paying four times as much in taxes after the war than before the war. And those taxes were going to repay bondholders who had bought the bonds, which those same farmers had sold the 10 to 20 cents on the dollar. So it was really a double or triple screwing, if you will, for the people that were really the salt of the earth and had fought the war. So Daniel Shea, Daniel Shea and Luke Day were both jailed in 1785 and 1786 for failure to pay their debts. You know, they were farmers. They ran debts for supplies. At the same time, they, they were 
not able to collect cash for selling the goods from their farm because no one really had cash in the countryside. So they owe debts up the supply chain and they were jailed. Um, Luke Day was jailed for two months in Northampton. They were, he was allowed out to work so that he could earn some money to pay back his creditors. But in August 1786, he literally just walked out on his parole in Northampton and returned home to, to Springfield. Could you tell us about how the protests in Massachusetts initially started? Sure. So after Luke Day, essentially, I use the word escape from jail, but that that implies some grand act. I think he literally just walked home. Um, he wasn't really under lock and key. He came back a month later leading 100 armed men to Northampton to try to close the courts. And they were joined en route by hundreds of other Army veterans, farmers, it was just such a divide in the country between the coastal elite, if you will, in Boston, who was writing the laws and the farmers and the, and the man, you know, we would call it flyover country today, but the, the farmers, the yeoman farmers who had fought in the war now couldn't pay their debts. The farmers were demanding debt, some form of debt relief. Generally, um, they were looking for more printing of paper money which Rhode Island had just done, further exacerbating the, the mood in Massachusetts. They were, excuse me, looking for the government to move out of Boston and move closer to the people, if you will. They were looking for lower salaries for the, um, for the governor and other senior executives in the, in the state government. So there, there was a very specific set of economic goals that were driving the rebellion. And, you know, while the rebellion is called Shays' Rebellion, it was really Luke Day who led the first action in Shays' Rebellion, which was marching on the courthouse in Northampton in September 1786. What was the government's response? Angrily. Um, and it, there were really two motives. I think it's very important to understand the dual motives of the government. So remember, the government, of, let's focus just on Massachusetts, and in 1785-86, you still had the Articles of Confederation ruling the country. The Constitution wasn't established. So it was a very, very loose set. You, you, you almost would say city-states. The states were fighting with each other. There was very little um, cooperation among the, the states. There was a big concern with, should we have a federal government? How strong the government should be? We just threw off a monarchy. What do we want? What kind of government do we want in return? So each state was, was really a, a, an island unto itself. So in Massachusetts, you had um, James Bowden, who had never fought, but always been a merchant and a participant in the triangle trade. You had Henry Knox, General, Benjamin Lincoln, General, um, Sam Adams, who was a famous rabble rouser in 1775, now is staunchly on the side of the government. So the government was operating from really dual motives. The, the one was personal. The, the, the merchants who were in government owned most of the, the government paper, the bonds, and they wanted to get paid in full. They felt that that was, that was the price of war was, was debt. And they, they, in their minds, they had risked capital to buy these debt bonds and they expected to get paid and to make money. So there was a, clearly a personal financial motive here and then there was the, the notion that, you know, we, America, had just fought this war for our independence, and now we're going to have another revolution, and we can't have another revolution. We, you know, we'll never establish our 
credit in Europe will never establish, we being the United States will never have any currency as a country unless we can have a strong central government. So the, so the government, Bowdoin, um, George Washington, though he obviously wasn't in Massachusetts, was watching this development closely from the sidelines, feeling he had you know, given up life and, and, and fortune for, for the seven years of the war. And now to see it all go, in his mind, all go down the drain if you had a series of farmers' rebellions around the country. So the government cracked down hard. Um, Sam Adams, who had, again, been the, the leader of the rebellion in 1775, now 10 years later, was saying that anyone who rebelled against a republic should be put to death. Um, so he was the staunchest opponent of the rebellion now. Um, he didn't seem to, to have any commonality in his mind with these rebels as compared to the rebels of 10 years ago. Whereas I think in Luke Day, Daniel Shea's mind, they viewed this all, their rebellion as just being a natural outcrop of what happened 10 years earlier in the revolution. They had the same committees of safety, the same farmers marching, Minutemen marching to uh, on a spur of the moment for their cause. So I think, I think it was a real different opinion, different approach to what we were trying to accomplish, but the government cracked down hard. So, (laughs) excuse me, in October, 1786, Boston passed the riot act and the militia act, the riot act would basically give the state militia the ability to shoot, to kill if any, against any rebels against the government, the militia act basically said that any militiamen that deserted to go to the rebel cause could face capital punishment because what was happening was as Luke Day and Daniel Shays and, and the, the, the yeoman farmers of the countryside, which were closing down courts, the state militia wasn't fighting back. They were just sort of walking away or joining the regulators as Luke Day and, and the Shaysites called themselves. So the government cracked down hard. They suspended habeas corpus. They weren't brave enough to go out into Western Massachusetts, the Worcester area, to try to arrest Luke Day and Shays. But one of the other leaders of the rebellion, Job Shattuck, who was also a captain in the Revolutionary War, was living much closer to Boston. And and Governor Bowdoin sent out a posse to arrest Job Shattuck and drag him back into Boston. So that's where the crackdown, that really started to get Shays and Day scared a little bit. Um, but the government was was clearly saying we're not going to tolerate a rebellion here and now. What was his relationship like with Daniel Shays? There is, there's no documentation per se of conversations they had. You know, there's no YouTube videos of the two of them talking or shooting hoops together or playing guitar together. Um, You know, so I think what you can, what, what what we can surmise is, they knew each other. They knew, certainly knew of each other. They lived within 25 miles of each other, which at that time wasn't like next door. Um, they both were captains in the Continental Army in the Northeast Corridor. Um, they both returned home. They were both home in 1781, 1782. They both were training their, mili- their town militia. Shays was a ward- town warden, committee of safety member, Luke Day in, in Springfield was one of the leaders of the town militia overall. Um, so they, they would have been in each other's orbit, probably is the best way to say it. Um, they both shared the, the same views, began to share the same views of the need to reform the government in Boston. I think it's really important to understand their 
differences between Shays and Day. You know, at 1782, <coughs> excuse me, there was what's called Eli's Rebellion in Western Massachusetts, which was a preacher who was known for um, arousing the poor and, and, and sort of sparking the debate about poor, rich versus poor, led a rebellion to close the courts. And Luke Day actually took the side of the government and defended the courthouse here. Um, where Daniel Shays wasn't here at all. And again, I said Luke Day joined the Society of the Cincinnati, which is a very aristocratic organization of um, supporting army officers, where Daniel Shays didn't. And, and we can talk a little bit about why that was different, what was different. But um, I, I think as the rebellion sort of gained steam and the government, sort of, and the government in Boston, really was ramping up to fight it, the Boston needed a scapegoat. And the, you know, the newspapers of the day were very pro-government. Daniel Shays became the scapegoat, became the pinata of choice here. And I, he became the, the, the generalissimo, in, as in one of the terms the newspapers used, uh, in the paper. And one of the, <clears throat> the reasons, <coughs> excuse me, here, why it was easier to scapegoat Shays and make, make, and make him the leader was because he was he came from a co more common background. He didn't join the Society of Cincinnati. And his, his greatest public faux pas, if you will, was towards, in 1780, he served under General Lafayette in, in New York, in New York, West, in Westchester, New Jersey, and Lafayette awarded all his officers a, a sword. Um, and Daniel Shays, who had fought in the war for five years, had his own sword and hadn't been paid in five years and sold the sword. On the, you know, and that became a cause celebre um, within the newspapers that how could you sell a sword that Lafayette gave to you it was such an honor. The truth is Lafayette gave one to every officer in his service um, but Shays sold it, and, and it became such an issue that the officers of the Continental Army were threatening to court-martial Shays that he just quit in the Army in 1780 and went home. So it was, it was easy for the newspapers of the day to make him the leader and to put him on the pedestal and then immediately cut him down with all the things he did wrong. So I think, Luke, so going back to the relationship with Days and Shays, I think Day honestly resented the attention that um, Daniel Shays was getting. I think he felt I was the one who started this rebellion. I led the first march, um, and now Daniel Shays is getting all this attention, and he's Daniel Shays, Shays' rebellion. Why isn't it Day's rebellion? In November, December 1786, Daniel Shays um, hiked into Vermont to try to attract Ethan Allen of the Green Mountain Boys to come in and lead the rebellion. So, you know, again, some some people say, well, Shades ordered Day to do that. I don't think that's the case at all. I think Day went off on his own to try to look for better leadership. Shades was never as militant as Day. Shades at times was considered to be accepting a pardon um, overall. So, again, I, I think the men were respectful of each other. They were they had the same end goal in mind. Um, but I think Day was considered more militant of the two. And I think honestly, you know, if you had asked him, he thought it should have been Day's rebellion. How did this rebellion end? What happens to Luke Day? Sure. 
So the, the rebellion sort of came to a climax in January 1787 in Springfield. So as the, the local militia, as 1786 was winding down, the, um, Governor Bowden was realizing that his own the militia of Massachusetts, he couldn't count on them to put down the rebellion. Too many of the people in Massachusetts were sympathetic with the regulators, as, as Shays and Day and, and their party were called. So Bowden had to go out and raise a mercenary army, which he did. The merchants, you know, led by William Phillips, um, put up the money to fund to, to, to fund an army to go to march out west and put down the rebellion. So come 1786, you know, Shays was trying his best to indicate, to get to a peaceful resolution. He's out in Western Massachusetts. There's now a bounty on his head. He faces the death penalty. Job Shattuck, as I said, was arrested, was still in jail in Boston. The the regulators, the Shazites, were getting nervous. They needed to be better armed. They were just still armed with whatever musketry they had brought home from the war. So Daniel Shays organized the march on the federal armory in Springfield. It was defend, going to be defended by the state militia led by William Shepard, who had been at Valley Forge, was a very well-respected um, officer during the revolution. He was leading the locals. Um, and at the same time, Bowdoin's mercenary army led by Benjamin Lincoln of of Yorktown, and I would argue Charleston, fame as a general, a major general in the revolution, was leading the, the mercenaries. Um, Day, Luke Day had a, a segment of the regulated forces in West Springfield. Daniel Shays led the main body of the army. They were going to attack the armory and arm themselves. And on a, if I get my days of the week right, on a Wednesday, um, Daniel Shays sends a letter, to, a messenger to Luke Day, saying, we're going to, I want to attack tomorrow on Thursday, the 25th of January. Luke Day writes back, no, I'm not ready yet. Let's do it on Friday. Sends it back with the messenger. But that messenger decided to stop for a beer, if you will, in the local tavern. He got drunk. His message never made it to Daniel Shays. In fact, it made it to William Shepard and the government forces. So they knew that the regulators were divided. Shays is waiting for Luke Day's part of the army to coordinate the attack on Thursday, the 25th. Day never shows up. Daniel Shea's group does attack. William Shepard doesn't want to shoot at his own veterans, so he fires over their head. But supposedly Daniel Shea's and his men keep marching forward. Finally, um, Shepard orders his cannon loaded with grape and to be lowered and shot into the Shea's eye, killing four of them. And the, everyone else ran away. Um, the next day, or within within the next 36 hours, Benjamin Lincoln arrives with the, the whole mercenary army. They immediately attack Luke Day's stronghold in Springfield. Day's men are routed, and basically, it's over. Um, Daniel Shays, Luke Day, have to run for their lives. They both run to Vermont, um, and where. At that point, remember, Vermont is not one of the 13 colonies, so it's considered an independent republic. And it's really where all the, the outlaws of the time gathered. So they're in Vermont right now for a while. After that, Luke Day made the mistake coming back into Massachusetts a little too soon. He gets arrested 
and thrown into jail in seven, later, 1787, 1788. But at that point, the countryside, which had supported the, re- the regulators and supported the, really the, it's not, the, I don't think the countryside so much supported revolt as much as they supported the economic goals of fairness that the regulators of Luke Day and Daniel Shea were, were, were espousing. They, the countryside rose up, and this time they, they ro- it rose up electorally. So um, Bowdoin got voted out of office. I think three-quarters of the state legislature got voted out of office. And all of a sudden, the state of Massachusetts became much more debtor-friendly. So ha- what happened today? Day got pardoned. Daniel Shea got pardoned. Day returned to his farm in Massachusetts, but he was now he's still a poor farmer. His family largely disowned him. And he basically lived out his life, if if not in poverty, certainly, excuse me, not in economic comfort. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? I, I think the article and Shays Rebellion, Days Rebellion, whatever you want to call it, really highlights the differences in the country at the Revolutionary War times. And and you could argue those differences that fissures, those fissures have existed right through till today largely economic differences, class differences, educational differences. And you could see it in, in, in the causes of Shays Rebellion. You had the, 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 the people, if you will, who had fought in the war demanding some justice and some economic justice. At the same time, you had, they were now directly opposed to their leadership in the war. Men like General George Washington, Benjamin Lincoln, Henry Knox, the leaders of the leaders of the revolution were now directly opposed in some respects to the to the government, to the people. And I think part of that, I think it also just shows the the fact that we as a country have survived and democracy survived just shows the what's the right word, the, the durability of democracy when it's handled correctly, that when it's handled well as it has been, that the regulators, the Shaysites, the Luke Days of the world were able to accomplish more at the ballot box than they were in armed revolt. In seven, right after 1787, right after the, the route of the Luke Day and, and Daniel Shays army, the countryside of Massachusetts revolted at the ballot box. James Bowden was defeated for governor by John Hancock by a three to one margin, 70 Five percent of the state legislators were kicked out of office. Um, <clears throat> bond prices fell dramatically, which the merchant class hated because they owned the bonds. Um, and the whole Constitution of the United States was threatened. Essentially, the ratification of the Constitution of the United States was threatened by what's happened in Massachusetts. Finally, the Constitution wasn't going to pass Massachusetts until Sam Adams and John Hancock came to compromises that basically led to the Bill of Rights, that the state of Massachusetts was the first to really stand up for the rights of the state, the rights of the individuals, um, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, the Tenth Amendment to the pillars of the Bill of Rights really came from actions from Massachusetts. Those were the trade-offs that the leaders of the country, Alexander Hamilton and Washington, had to make to get the constitution passed. They had to recognize there was going to be more individual rights than they had originally wanted. The, the concept of how much democracy is too much democracy 
was a real hot button at the time. So hopefully this article, this article will help readers understand some of the economic currents that under, underlie the war and the period immediately after the war. Scott Smith, thanks again. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.